0: Listeners and welcome back to the Skylight Books podcast series. Uh, we're here for an episode of Skylight, and we're so lucky to have with us uh, author Eric Wolfson to talk about his new book, "50 Years of the Concept Album in Popular Music: From the Beatles to Beyoncé." Eric is also the author of the 150th volume. Of the 33 and a third book series in which he discusses Elvis Presley's from Elvis in Memphis. He works in the Performing Arts Division of the U.S. Copyright Office, and he lives in Washington, D.C. I'm so glad that he's here. I also just know this guy from the music scene in New York City when we were both there. I was there uh, at the time that he recorded and released his album State Street Rambler, which you should find. It's on the Internet. Go find it. It's really good. Uh, Anyhow, here's Eric Wolfson. Hello. Hello.
1: Thank you, Justin. Great intro. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for letting me be here. Thanks, Skylight Book. Um, So I was just going to start by reading part of the intro just to sort of set it up.
0: Yeah, so we get Um, a flavor of it. Sounds good.
1: Get a flavor. All right. So yeah, this book's about the concept album, and this part uh, sort of sets it up. Um, So what is a concept album? For our purposes here, a concept album is an album that takes you on a journey by virtue of its unifying mood, theme, narrative, and or underlying idea. When we talk about concept albums, we're talking about art, which generally requires some degree of intention on the part of the artist. There are some common traits for a concept album. They're generally a studio album or new songs recorded by one artist, as opposed to a live album or a compilation gathering older songs by one or more artists. A concept album's songs often run together in one or more suites and sometimes have a central song or theme that is reprised before the end, often in the second to last or final song. Finally, the concept album usually has artwork tying the work together. To keep things from getting too unwieldy, I stuck with what I term popular music, which is essentially rock, pop, soul, and hip hop. Albums from other genres like jazz, country, and reggae were considered, but ultimately left out to keep things streamlined. As we've seen, the concept album was not a format invented by rock and roll, but rather a loose structure that rock and roll built upon and perfected. Rock music came from its own rambling tradition, including train hopping, Brickmen like Jimmy Rogers, Blues Journeymen like Robert Johnson, Western folk musicians like Woody Guthrie, Northbound Blues singers like Muddy Waters, and Wandering Lost Souls like Hank Williams, all of whom collectively helped to birth a music that was as restless as their itinerant lives. For a music that came from a thousand endless roads, rock and roll was the sound of breaking free. When Elvis Presley sang I'm Leaving Home Now Baby on his first single That's All Right in mid-1954, he took the history of the music with him. And so it was until rock and roll lost its own path towards the end of the 1950s, when nearly all of its key figures hit a dead end. Elvis was in the Army, Chuck Berry was in jail, Little Richard was in the Ministry, Jerry Lee Lewis was in Disgrace, and Buddy Holly was in the Graveyard. A new generation emerged with music epitomized by songs like Dion's The Wanderer, which took a once-dangerous music and sanitized it as empty fun. Several major new movements would save rock and roll in the mid-60s, namely the influences of the Beatles and their British Invasion counterparts, as well as Bob Dylan and his folk steeped contemporaries. The key element for the rock and roll concept album was the introduction of psychedelic drugs, which internalized traveling through rock music from a literal physical journey into a surreal psychological one. While Robert Johnson once famously sang about rambling on one's mind, the rock concept album introduced rambling in one's mind, the concept album provided a format in which one could take an extended trip through music without ever having to ingest a hallucinogen. Though the through the concept album, rock and roll transcends itself from a music to be enjoyed to a music to be experienced, and the album is the canvas for the expression. Nice. That's a bit of an overview. Yeah,
0: okay. yeah, and uh, I will say that, like you know, as a music nerd. Um, I do have some bones to pick with some of your selections versus some of your exclusions, like, um, yep. like I, I'm I'm glad that you stayed out right, like no no country, because like otherwise I'm just like why is there no Willie? Why is there no Johnny Cash? Because
1: I know I know, and that was I had to just um, I I tasked myself to come up with 25 albums across 50 years, mm-hmm. and I found that once I was including country, I mean, I really, there were a couple albums that I really wanted to get in there that I didn't, um, including Redheaded Stranger, that was, like, mm-hmm. going to be totally in there. And, um, honestly, for Johnny Cash, I had this weird sp- place in my heart for the uh, Bicentennial record he did called America,
2: mm-hmm.
1: where he's, like, telling the history through all the states growing out west. Have you ever heard that one? No, not it's that pretty, one. It was kind of, like, not a hit and pretty obscure, but um, I always found that really interesting because, like, he's becoming, like, the voice of America or something. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, I I could have clearly done um, you know the the American Indian one or the um, yeah. the labor uh, work songs. I mentioned them in the introduction, but I just uh, I felt like once I was bringing people like that, then other people were getting thrown out that I wanted yeah. to keep in the picture.
0: Yeah, I mean that that's the the you know for the nerd like the nerd nerd like the good and the bad is that like. Um, This, this I feel, is a book that's, like, accessible to someone who likes music but isn't, like, super versed and wants to learn a little more. But, like, then you're also just sort of like, wait, what about... You know, like you, you explicitly say, like, no Genesis, no Village Green Preservation Society. Like, it's just sort of like, but what, a, you know, like, it's like, I want to get into the weird mythology of all this dumb stuff. But it's like, you know what, there are there are other books. Maybe there'll be a volume two for for the- That's the my nerds. dream.
1: My dream would be to write a second volume, put in Village Green, put in The Lamb Light Down on Broadway, put on Redhead Stranger. I think Randy Newman's uh, Good Old Boys, mm. I think, is a fascinating record. Um, maybe even Janet Jackson rhythm nation. There's so many things oh, that's yeah. like, yeah, there's, so, once you start thinking you're like, Oh God, there's like so many records that you could do. And, um, I think I might even include like, uh, there's a riot going on, which I kept going back and forth over whether or not I considered that like a true concept album. Yeah. Um, what, but what, yeah, like,
0: yeah, were, were there like, like, were there like, uh, other ones that were sort of like in the running that eventually you're just like, okay, the scope is too much. It like it, I have to lose it. It has to go. Like, were there any darlings you had to kill? Yes.
1: Yes. Uh, very much. Um, I, I, for a while, up until the very last couple of months, um, uh, Nebraska by Springsteen was oh, going to be in yeah. there. Oh yeah. But I decided I, yeah, that was a definite kill your darling situation because it was so hard to find stuff from the 1980s. The eighties were kind of a doldrum period until like the very end of the decade. Um, so trying to get stuff from the mid 80s is hard. And with Nebraska, I guess I, it's sort of, for me in some ways it wasn't, I was always sort of convincing myself because uh, it, it sort of almost more of like what I would call a theme album as opposed to a concept album in yeah. terms of, it doesn't tell one story. And it's it sort of like, snapshots from america but then sort of when i was listening to the record and thinking about all the songs a lot of songs actually still take place in jersey whereas i thought i would think of the songs as being from the midwest and some of them yeah. are but a lot of them are also just from like jersey places and yeah <laughs> so that compared to the fact that it was kicking out um zen arcade by hooster do and that i was like that is a concept album so i'm like i can't just favor bruce especially when everybody's written everything about bruce and arguably it's um Nebraska is more of a folk record than a rock record, you could argue, mm-hmm. so there aren't any drums on it or anything, so I sort of held my nose, threw that out, and then um <laughs> then that came for uh, Zen Arcade, which some people have already like i I've reached out to a bunch of reviewers, potential reviewers, and stuff, and one guy wrote me back right away and was like, anything that has Zen Arcade in it, I am reading, and I am like very excited to write about oh so. that's
0: nice, yeah, yeah, I think we should we should take a little tour through the the book because what you've done oh. is you have you've sort of you've split it into five parts you've picked five eras um mm-hmm. uh, i'll just say them real quick so part one the founding era 1967 to 69 part two the golden era 70 to 74 uh part three the modern era 75 to 89 uh part four the postmodern era which is the 90s and then part five the new millennium um and i did find it interesting that like like it does seem like the the character of these albums changes and i and i i definitely uh, spoiler when we get to the 90s i definitely have some questions for you about some of the things that were picked over other things but but i think i think we should Thank
1: you for 90s were one of the very hardest decades. Like I in the imagine. airplane over the sea, that was like, that was always like, <laughs> but yeah, I have, I have arguments with me too about what I picked.
0: <laughs> so I was hoping that maybe you could, could read like uh, a little bit from these eras. So, so we'll go, go back to the first one, founding era, 67 to 69. You start off with Sergeant Peppers. Well, what, yeah. what, what would you like to read from in that
1: era? I actually, I had the Zappa one ready to go just cause, um, it okay. sort of addresses Peppers, but then it's the reaction. I just feel like, I, I felt like I had to start the book with Sergeant Pepper because yeah. I personally don't feel like con, uh, like Pet Sounds is a true concept album. So for me, mm-hmm. like, Peppers really made it the step forward, and historically, all the conversation about concept albums seemed to happen in the press after the Beatles released Sergeant Pepper. Like, that really seemed to be the kind of inciting yeah. incident to the point. Um,
0: and one thing one thing I like about what you're what you've written especially about that album where there's so much has been said is that that you're you're both you're not you're not putting it down but you like you like contextualize it for what it meant then and the way that that shifts slowly in the press and in the way people perceive it now. I forget which publication you said, but like basically they put it at like number 87. Like it's the album that went from the best album ever to it's like the 87th best album ever. I thought that was kind yeah. of an interesting detail. And then also I, I uh, so, so I, you know, I'll just read all the, the titles from each section. So Sergeant Peppers, okay. then you have the Moody Blues, Days of Future Past. Uh, Frank Zappa and the Mother's Invention, We're All in It for the Money, Jimi Hendrix Experience, Electric Ladyland, and the Who's Tommy, and I also like the way that you you ha- you have the albums converse with each other because especially in this first era, like people are definitely building off of what other people are doing, and so like yeah, as you're saying with the Zappa, it's definitely like him arguing with the Beatles and arguing yeah. with like the counterculture in general. So so yeah, I, I I enjoyed that approach. Thank
1: you. I enjoyed writing it that way, and actually. We're only in it for the money was sort of like my sort of teacher's pet for the, like, I've always, I would have pitched this for 33 and a third, but I'm like, no, this has to be in, in the concept album book whenever uh-huh. it comes out. Um, so anyway, uh, so this is from the, uh, we're only in it for the money by the Mothers of Invention. So by this point, the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band tire- towered over the rock scene, but Zappa wasn't impressed. Sgt. Pepper was okay, he later said but just the whole aroma of what the Beatles were was something that never really caught, caught my fancy. I got the impression from what was going on at the time that they were only in it for the money, and that was a pretty unpopular view to hold. Zappa's cynicism was reflective of a fundamental cultural difference between the mood of America and England in the mid-1960s culture. By the time George Harrison traveled to Haight-Ashbury in August 1967, he was expecting the hippies to, quote, all be nice and clean and friendly and happy. Instead, he found, quote, hideous, spotty little teenagers. He further described it, described the afternoon as, quote, living in a erroneous, Bosch painting. <laughs> Indeed, had Sgt. Pepper been created in America, mused Beatles historian Ian McDonald, where the clash between establishment and counterculture was violent, Sgt. Pepper would have been a reactionary pig, lovely Rita, an uptight bureaucrat. The Beatles, their age prejudice dissolved by LSD, were having none of this theirs was an optimistic, holistic view. The Mothers of Inventions Were Only it for the Money was the American Sergeant Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band. Released on March 4, 1968, while Sergeant Pepper was still lodged in the American Top 20, it was the rock and roll Bride of Frankenstein, a sequel that in sending up its source material actually improved it. The album's artwork was the giveaway. The original cover was supposed to be a direct parody of the Beatles' already iconic album cover, only with all the Sergeant Pepper's glamorous, Hollywood stars and spiritual gurus replaced by a freak show of controversial political figures, President Johnson twice, pop culture celebrities, Jimi Hendrix in the flesh, he was there for the actual photograph that was taken, uh, infamous media icons like Lee Harvey Oswald getting shot, and of course freaks like Max Schreck as Nasiratu twice, many with black bars over their eyes. Unlike the artistic collage that had been done for *Sergeant Pepper's surreal crowd, this version felt far more crude, a child's cut and paste job of the polished original. At the center was the mothers of invention, cross dressed and stunned, holding the whole thing together. But this image wasn't allowed to be on the cover, Zappa always maintained, because Paul McCartney refused to grant him permission to do it. Years later, McCartney claimed otherwise. I never understood why Zappa blamed me for not being able to use the Sergeant Pepper sleeve. I don't think EMI would have stopped him or even could have stopped them. Zappa's artistic loss was his album's conceptual gain. Instead of using his faux Sgt. Pepper photo on the cover, he hid it on the inside, inverting Sgt. Pepper's artwork. Now, the inside gatefold of the Beatles album, the Beatles dressed in Sgt. Pepper suits against a bright yellow background, became Zappa's outer front and back cover, only with the mothers wearing dresses against the same bright yellow background. Like the music it held, the artwork of We're Only It For The Money literally turned Sgt. Pepper inside out. Nice. And Thank I you.
0: and I really like that album. Like as as a general thing, like like do you do, did you enjoy most of the albums that you had to cover? I, I think there's one in this era that it seemed like you were mixed on and I'll ask you in a second. But
1: I think I might I might have a guess which one that is. Um yeah, I kinda learned to love them. But yeah, okay. there were definitely there's certainly albums that aren't my taste, but I got like but I would be surprised, like some of them really knock my socks off, like the, the Donna Summer one. Mm. Um, going into that, I was kind of like, you know, it's just not disco and, and like that era. I'm just not generally interested in. But mm. that album totally won me over. That's a great freaking album. Oh, nice. Um, so yeah, but some yes, yeah, not everything's gonna be like the greatest thing you ever heard. What's your What's your guess for? Well, well, I mean,
0: there's there's two, but like, but the Moody Blues "Days of Future Past." You definitely. Are, are unsparing in describing some of the sections as just like, oh boy, what is this? Like <laughs> <laughs> a culpa
1: cool on that one. Yeah,
0: <laughs> which is fair because that's that's an album that I remember I heard years ago. It did not stick in my brain, so I, I decided to play it while I was reading your stuff on it, and like I was having similar reactions where I was like, oh yeah, this this. Orchestral Passage just sounds like a bad Disney movie or
1: uh <laughs> right. it does. it's like sounds of the South or something. Right. <laughs> Not even a good Disney movie.
0: But the one uh some of the things you said about one of the other albums that I I take a little umbrage with is uh is that you basically say that you think Tommy could be cut from two albums down to one album and you pinpoint some of the songs that you really don't like. And I am a huge fan of the like macabre John Entwistle songs, um, like uh, uh, Cousin Kevin, Kevin and uh, what is it, Fiddle? But uh, like in je- like across the albums, I like his like macabre songs. So I I enjoy oh. like Cousin Kevin, but like yeah, I mean it seems a bit bad taste, and like I don't disagree with that aspect of your criticism. But I was like, oh wow, he would just cut two of the songs that I enjoy. <laughs>
1: I would. I um, I don't think they based well, and um, not that it matters. Tommy will always be Tommy. Right. But I was just surprised as, like, when I was in college, whenever, I mean, I, I knew Tommy from, my mom was a huge Tommy fan and took us to see it on Christmas and everything. In college, I sort of was digging deeper, and so I finally, I got the deluxe version of Live at Leeds, mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh, I'll listen to Tommy on the second disc, and it was it was not only amazing. I don't know if you've listened to the Live at Leeds mm-hmm, where it's mm-hmm. like, like ant whistle in one ear, like Townsend in the other, and like, you know, the drums and the singing in the middle. And it's just, you can't believe it's only three instruments and four men that are making like all this sound. It's, yeah. it's almost like a Spectre type thing <laughs> in its own way. Um, and I was like, this is so much better than Tommy. Like, this is just, I just think it holds, it's tighter. I feel like it's more fun to listen to. And at that time, I then tried to buy every single live Tommy that they released, which at the time, like, they did their Woodstock set that came out. They played it at um, uh, the big 1970 festival in England, um, Isle of Wight. They played it there, and I got that CD. I got, like, every CD that had a live version of it. Yeah. Because they were all slightly different. And the Leeds one was just the best. And I, part of why I think it's good is because it cuts the underchair, which I still don't understand why that's there. <laughs> right. Especially taking the Rael riff. That you know used much better yeah. on uh, who sellout, right? I can tell we could be here for days talking about this. I love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah,
0: no, no, no. I, uh, <laughs> I, I agree actually. But but and that that I will give you. I do think I do think the live performances of Tommy are more interesting than the album. Probably
1: faster too, which is fun. Yeah,
0: and and also like yeah that the plot of Tommy like the movie lays bare that the plot of Tommy shouldn't, it shouldn't be a story. It shouldn't. (laughs) 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 Um, And I say that as a huge fan who like was, you know, like first heard it when I was like 12 and like, I've never like, it's, you know, I I haven't even been able to really get into Quadrophenia because I'm like, well, it's not, it doesn't give me the same feeling that Tommy gives me. So
1: totally. No, I bought the criterion of the Quadrophenia movie being like, oh, here's what will get me into it. And I'm just like,
0: Thing's weird. That's like what I got out of there. <laughs> yeah. um, all right, cool. Let's let's move to the next era. Let's go to the golden era, 1970 to 74. Um, here you are covering uh, Marvin Gaye's What's Going On. This isn't coming up, but it, it's uh, Joni Mitchell's Blue, right? And then yep. Jethro That's Tull's blue. Thick as a Brick. Uh, David yep. Bowie's The Rise and Fall of... Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, and then yeah, mm-hmm. and then Pink Floyd's The Dark Side of the Moon. Heard of it?
1: i was heard of it. Um, uh, uh,
0: what did you want to read from this section?
1: I'll read from the Marvin Gaye one just because it's relatively short, and I don't want to. I don't want to use up all your time here.
0: Oh yeah, um, no, unless... but this is fun. As long as I'm having fun, that's all that matters. Um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> Wait. um I'll, I'll still do Marvin Gaye because I just I, I this is. I, don't know. I think it's interesting. How, well, I'll read it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. On May 3rd, 1977, Marvin Gaye appeared on Dinah Shore's television show, where she asked about where she asked about her favorite album of his. What's going on? I learned today that you consider that a concept album, as did I. She tells her in her soft and lilting Southern drawl. Would you explain what you meant by that? Gay thoughtfully stumbles over his words as he attempts to set the scope of the project. Well, when the world and well. The State of the Union was, and, well, the Vietnam Vietnamese War was raging hot and heavy during the period we conceived it, and there was a lot of unrest in America. There were college kids being shot in campuses. My brother was at war, and I prayed a lot that he would come through safely. It was a very, a very trying period for me at Motown, even. Sure, redirects your questioning to be more about the album's universal themes as Charlie's Angel star Kate Jackson looks on starstruck, mesmerized by Gay's words. I tried to write a general kind of broad statement, Gay responded. I didn't want to step on any toes particularly, and I still don't, but it was quite an experience. I don't recall much about the album. I feel that it was very divine and, well, very personal, very divine. I don't hardly remember writing these songs. I mean, it was like I was in a kind of some sort of a other dimension or something when I did it. Although Gay is only 38 years old and nearly as many years away from making What's Going On in 1971 as he was from getting killed in 1984, he speaks about his masterpiece with the bemused detachment. If, as Shore implied, Gay had just declared his masterpiece a concept album earlier, he now hovers around the term like a pilgrim looking back and trying to figure out how he got to where he is. So yeah, that's for the
0: it's interesting cuz I cuz I d- I do wonder if if like concept album come when did it go from being like sort of like cuz you you talk about this in the intro a little bit like from a from like a marketing term that's a good thing it's like this isn't just a bunch of singles this isn't a concept album or an album concept either way um to like something that maybe like feels too highfalutin and too pretentious uh you know schoolboy uh exercises or whatever like um, was it yeah. that quick? Like, do you think it was that quick or I don't know?
1: I think Zappa was, was proving that it was that quick because <laughs> he basically made like a bad magazine parody of Sergeant Pepper <laughs> and like that, you know, not even a year away from Sergeant Pepper coming out. So I think that was already, because um, in my book I do discuss people like thick as a brick, which is also in this section, like the Ian Anderson was purposely going out to kind of like lay up the whole concept album thing. Yeah. Um, I I do think it very quickly turned from this term of endearment to or mar- probably marketing term is more accurate, like you said. Yeah. To something that could be sort of like oh, maybe that's not so cool. You know, like <laughs> I don't know if punk rock would have happened, it wasn't for the concept album. You know. Yeah. It's uh, just one of those things.
0: Yeah. I um. What was I going to say? Oh yeah, yeah, it was about thick as a brick. The thing that's so funny about that is I definitely looked at my friend's vinyl copy that has like that whole fake newspaper on it. I remember that so well. And just like being like, this isn't real, right? Like this isn't really like based on a story by a kid who's who's known as right. Little Milton for writing this epic. But I also I li- I liked your story about how sometimes they're like, you know, potentially lazy rock writers would be like, oh, yeah, it's written by a small boy who is nicknamed Little Milton. It reminds me of um, I forget what name he used, but there's a John Carpenter movie called Prince of Darkness where he didn't want to give himself writing credit. He just was like, I don't want. People to think too hard about this so he came up with a fake name and in the press kit gave the guy a fake bio so then people were like yeah it's written by this rocket scientist um ah. and it's like no it was written by john carpenter who made up a fake rocket scientist
1: that's crazy that's that's almost like Annie kaufman level as far as i'm concerned yeah <laughs>
0: um uh. yeah um Wait, so we're in the seven 70- oh, Oh, so I do have a, a question. So the last the last one you profile in in what you call the Golden Area seven seventy four is Dark Side of the Moon. And I feel like mm-hmm. when it comes to concept albums by Pink Floyd, so you, you only do one album per band, obviously, because there's only so yeah, much space. Yeah, <laughs>
1: otherwise, that'll be like the Pink Floyd book and the, you know, whoever <laughs> right.
0: book. Um, but like what drew you to do Dark Side versus the Wall because I feel like most people's go to when they think of Pink Floyd concept album maybe because of the movie is just The Wall. So
1: what made you pick Dark Side instead? I agree. Um and originally I remember early on that I even switched them out for each other at one point. Oh wow. But I decided to cuz I I always liked The Wall growing up. I mean it's got some sort of extra baggage but um you know, even before I knew it was made into a movie when I was a kid, I, you know, I'd listen to that record and be like, wow, this is really doing something cool.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, I liked dark side of the moon cause it was earlier. It's cleaner. It's more consistently excellent. Um, just cause it's, you know, half the length of, yeah. um, the wall. And while the wall tells like this rock star story, um, I sort of felt like I'd already addressed that a little bit with, um, the Ziggy Stardust chapter, mm-hmm. uh, that I sort of covered that theme before it just would have felt like if you didn't get to Pink Floyd till like the end of the seventies, I would have felt like something was missing.
2: Mm, and
1: dark mm-hmm. the moon more than any other album is like an epic upon itself in that unlike charging pepper, like people still think it's amazing and still buy it. Mm. And it still, will have a, you know, billboard top 200 now and then just cause it just happens to sell really well in a week. Yeah. Um, all that just sort of, I liked that it was Pink Floyd's, um, not just best album, but they all seemed to be really getting along like as a team it was their most collaborative album, which mm-hmm. I thought was really interesting and for me, you know it almost it almost was a like a warm up in some ways to shine on you, crazy diamond because there's a or sorry wish you were here um because I think they were sort of like dealing as a band with sort of the withdrawal of Sid Barrett's demise mm-hmm. and uh I thought that was a really interesting theme and the whole idea of like using madness and whatnot, which the wall does in a very different way five years later. But, um, I think the fact that you're doing it for the first time, I think for the fact that that really set a new standard for how rock, how good a rock album could sound. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's just sort of like a neater, it's just a neater thing to work with. Whereas the wall is like pretty extravagant and sort of, you know, overblown in a way. Um, even though I still love the wall, um, but I just felt like for here, if I didn't if I didn't get the dark side, there was just something sort of viscerally essential about it, where about how the songs run together, about how people will just listen to it over and over again, like all in one sitting, not like okay, I'm going to turn on track three or whatever. Right. Um, yeah.
0: The whole continuum so of it. All
1: those, yeah. yeah, and I also see it as like the album, sort of the rock album's probably peak. Originally, the manuscripts. Like way back was going to like end with dark side. I thought that was an interesting place to end oh, wow. because that, that became the one. Um, but then yeah, I, I'm glad it didn't. I'm glad I changed it. The editors were basically like, "Oh, you should really make this more current and bring in more you know recent people." Which I'm really glad I did because I think I think it adds a ton that wouldn't have been there otherwise. Yeah, how but, long? Uh,
0: I'm I'm curious how long because I I. I forget where you said it, maybe it was on social media or something, but you said that this is an idea you've had for a long time. Like how long has it been like formulating? How long have you been working on this?
1: I've spent over half my life on this book, Oh, literally. Wow. I, it started as a project my senior year or junior year of college. Oh, wow. So that was around 2002 or so. Um, and it was basically, um, I wrote, this started, I took a like rock and roll history class and we had to pick. Songs that somehow were linked as the finale, and this was still like we were doing it on a cassette tape type thing, and like handing in the cassette tape because I'm like ancient. That's like analog. <laughs> um, and I remember the professor even saying, "Oh, I'm I'm the smartest professor in school. Like, as people's finals, I just have to go to the beach and listen to everybody's mixtapes they made me." <laughs> and now I think now it's like he's like I can't even I can't even talk about like a blank like no one knows what a blank tape is. No one knows what a blank CD is. Right. Um, Anyway, so I did this thing. I was always interested in the idea of traveling around uh, rambling. And that was originally the theme was the idea, the, the image of rambling. And then the concept album sort of became like the kind of crux of it all. Where it all sort of like, was, that was kind of like the gem idea. Yeah. And then it sort of went on to like more punk and stuff afterwards. But it was only the middle part that was about the concept album. And then I got to do an independent study my senior year where I started actually writing this. And basically the guy I worked with was, um, said to me, you know, this is the best, this is the best part is the concept down part. That's really amazing. And if you're trying to pitch a book, you want to write the best part first. He's like, so just let's just write about the concept down part and then see. And so that's sort of how it all started. And then like over time, slowly I was like, okay, well, I guess maybe this will just be a concept down book and just stuff was constantly changing. I mean, there was a lot more about that sort of tying back to the old, um, you know, rambling type blues and folk people but that sort of got pushed away as i kind of just was going more for the the for, um conversation between the albums. Yeah. If that makes
0: sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense having read it. I also I also like your approach to each album like not not to a point where it becomes like same old same old but i feel like each chapter sort of has a formula where you sort of set the scene, you sort of bring in some history, you sort of like tell us why, you know, why this album exists. And then, and then you take us on a guided tour. Like it's, it's not exactly like a synopsis or a breakdown. It's, I, I, I I say guided tour very intentionally uh, through the album track by track and sort of like show us the scene. And it was good because like my instinct with this sort of book or like a 33 and a third is always to like, well, let me put on the record while I'm reading, even if like what I'm reading doesn't fit you know, if I'm if I'm reading about a different song, but whatever, is that in some instances here, just because of practicality, I had to read it at work or whatever. Like, I couldn't always be listening to the music. And I found that even when I wasn't able to hear the songs, and maybe it was an album I didn't know, like, we're going to get to it, but I, I don't know that Iron Maiden album. I still felt like I was in good hands and, and that I was, I was being taken through it in a way that I was like, Oh, I get it. Like, I think I get the core of this. So I really, there's not a question here. It's just sort of me giving you big ups for saying like, I wait, I like the way it's structured. And then, and then the end of each chapter is sort of like the impact, like what, what the album, uh, you know, the, the dent it made in culture. And then also like maybe some more about the way it, uh, is, is, uh, feeding into some other things to come or whatever. Yeah. So.
1: Yeah. Definitely. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. And that, I mean, that was sort of the whole crux right, to so the whole thing originally was, you know, Oh, I get to like, I get to like walk people through albums in yeah. a way like that. That seemed like a fun, exciting thing. And it's hard because, you know, I did want it to be that it wouldn't be boring if you didn't know the album. Like yeah. obviously there's a book where certain people are going to buy it and only read three chapters and just put the rest <laughs> away, which is fine. Right. But I tried, I tried to set everything up so that everything was pretty accessible
0: yeah and just, i, I like, and I, I think it's got to be hard with an album because like obviously some songs on an album like the the artist is probably has got things that you can sort of pull like and like this is their comment on this song and this is this is what it sounds like but but like some of them are just like you know going back to tommy like some of them are just fiddle about and like what can you say about it apart from like well it sounds like this and it, it was a song like yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> right and, there, and then there's also a question of then the public like correcting the record because with like the I think is a brick we were talking about earlier Ian Anderson has that great quote about how you know concept albums were getting ridiculous and he wanted to make fun of them and he lists all these bands like yes and like all these albums that were that were like these sort of big overblown concept albums at the time but I had a different book that pointed out that that was a history of prog rock that pointed out that all the albums and um, artists he named wouldn't actually make those records to so like 73, 74.
2: Right.
1: <laughs> so it's only like looking back on it that he's like, well, here, you know, yes did that, you know, tales of, you know, uh, topographic seas or whatever, oh, was yeah. Another album, but they had I to get, considered.
0: get through a few other ones to get to that one. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, so it's just, uh, it's funny because then you don't want you don't want to be the jerk who's like actually um, da 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 da. <laughs> right. It's like let Ian Anderson talk. It's Ian Anderson. Actu- oh, and, thank you.
0: And actually, that that yeah, um, I, I like a lot of this book. That that's a really fun chapter. Just I think because of the Ian Anderson quotes like that you brought in. Yeah, yeah, totally.
1: It was fun. It's uh, most fun finding quotes and in interviews and stuff. I will say that the uh, the Joni Mit- whoever runs the Joni Mitchell stuff and the and the Liz Fair stuff, their websites have basically every press thing done about them from the very beginning. It's all totally free. So it's like the, whatever the Joni Mitchell pages and whatever the Liz fair pages, it's beautiful. Oh, awesome! I found so much stuff that you wouldn't even know
0: the, the uh, promise of the internet realized. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> Finally. I know.
0: Uh, okay, cool. So let's move to the next section. The next section you call the modern era. It's from 1975 to 89. We've got uh parliament's, Mothership Connection, Donna Summer's Once Upon a Time, Husker Du's Zen Arcade, uh, Iron Maiden's Seventh Son of a Seventh Son, and De La Soul's Three Feet High and Rising. So actually a, a pretty varied section here and, yeah. you're, and you're covering, you're also covering like 15 years, but like, yeah, it's a pretty, pretty varied chunk here.
1: Yeah. It's, uh, I'll just, I guess I'll just read the first part at the once upon a time one. Okay. Nice. So I talk about, um, the Broadway musical being like, uh, and the cast album being a direct precursor to the long playing albums being like a non-classical album. hits, and then sort of the concept album as well. Um, And so I mentioned Hair, which was like, you know, the first great rock one in 68 that then became like all these productions that launched all these careers. So among the countless up and coming performers to get their break in Hair was 19 year old African-American singer and actress Donna Summer, then known as LaDonna Gaines, who played one of the leads in the 1968 Munich production. It was all part of my fairy tale existence in a beautiful country that I completely fallen in love with. Summer wrote of Germany in her autobiography, Ordinary Girl, The Journey. She later explained, imagine falling asleep in a quaint German bed and breakfast to awaken with the dawn to the smell of um, Liebkuchen, uh, gingerbread. I probably destroyed that (laughs) pronunciation." And my then boyfriend, Ronnie, calling me from outside in a horse-drawn carriage. I quickly ran to the balcony, threw open the doors, and stepped barefoot into two feet of white virgin snow. It was a real-life Christmas snow globe with... uh, Nishwanein Castle, towering above us, which was the Walt Disney's inspiration for Cinderella's castle. It was as mystical and surreal a uh, vision that I will never forget. One that every girl should be allowed to experience at least once. The fairy tale scene stayed with Summer. A few years later, she was a single mom in Munich, struggling to make ends meet. Summer took in singing jobs whenever she was available, which led her to Giorgio Moroder, an Italian porn record producer who worked with his partner English born Pete Bellio, at, at his music land studio in Munich. To Morinder, Summer was a true anomaly, a professional African American female singer in Germany. She sang on scores of demos that they wrote together, including nineteen seventy five Love to Love You Baby. And so out of this came the uh, once the, the album Once Upon a Time, which I say is one of the best organized concept albums ever made. Unlike many other concept albums, Donna Summer's masterpiece can be followed from its first listen. And yet, all its reliance upon one of the oldest stories in human history, Cinderella, it maintains a clarity that never wallows in cliché. The album is divided into four acts, one for each side, three of which are programmed as an extended suite of music. Indeed, upon its initial release, many discos played each side like it was one big song. All the songs written by Summer Moroder Mar- and Belote, which speaks to the team's versatility and focus. So that's a little bit no, Donna Summer. And that's yeah. one, like I was saying, that's one of the albums that I had, I would have never listened to that I'm like, this is a really cool album.
0: And with albums like that, was was someone proposing them to you or were you just like researching the era and like, I need something or?
1: Uh, Kind of both depending on what it was. In this one, one of the early editor feedback things I got back when I was still pitching it was You Leave Out Donna Summer. And at the, time I, at the time, I had the Ramones first album in the book. That was always like my little hill to die on. Because uh-huh. I felt, I think in hindsight, it was sort of more of an anti-concept album. But I always <laughs> saw the idea of them all like dressing the same, pretending they're brothers, having these like two-minute songs that all sound the same, one after the other. It, it struck me as conceptual. Like it really, and it still does. Like that first record, uh-huh. actually the first four, records, but especially the first one because um, it's all like so cookie cutter basic and and like pre programs. Anyway, this editor was like, how can you include the Ramones, which isn't, no one even thinks of the concept album <laughs> and then leave out Summer. And I sort of was like, and so I was huh, Donna Summer. So, I mean, I knew she made some like, you know, bad girls or whatever, but I didn't realize how much her records leading up to that were really a progression. We're like, she did one of all like songs about different seasons, and then the next one was like songs for different eras. So she was sort of like really working with themes and and, and like collective ideas. And then I feel like it's all just um, completely blown wide open with uh, Once Upon a Time, which is sort of her telling a, a disco version of um, Cinderella, which actually was like the least big hit of the all of her albums. Like it was actually kind of a flop. And she doesn't even mention it in her autobiography, which shocks me because she goes through a lot of the records that she made cuz that's like that was her bread and butter but yeah or her, her gingerbread and butter <laughs> um but, her her uh, yeah.
0: lebkuchen leb or whatever it is yeah that's that is good I
1: so, don't uh, even
0: know that much so
1: <laughs> I just thought uh, the whole past master CDs always had the Beatles their two German songs.
0: Oh right and right 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 yeah yeah.
1: Anyway um she was someone that would suggest to them, like, oh, wait, no, this is good, and it did, you know, I was definitely strongly encouraged to have diversity in the book, which, and, you know, female stories, like, gay stories, just all sorts of stories, yeah which I, again, it sort of and it. There's definitely this feeling with rock and roll somewhere in the mid to late 60s where it's, like, some people just sort of stopped including, like, black performers, and, you know, it's like, well, rock and roll in the 70s is like Led Zeppelin. It's not, like, you know, stacks or whatever. Like it's not Isaac Hayes, mm-hmm. even though
2: mm-hmm.
1: the conversation happening between rock and soul yeah. or beer, whatever you want to call it. I mean, you've got the talking heads. One of their best songs is a cover of, you know, take me to the river. Like what's that all about? Right. You know, like Al Green you're going to just like pretend like Al Green never happened. You know, <laughs> it's, I think it's a little preposterous. Um, yeah. So I'm definitely a big fan of like, it's all like Aretha Franklin, James Brown, like piling in the same pile with Elvis and like the Beatles and everybody. Yeah. Cause, um, the beauty of rock and roll, rock and roll only happened because there's, cause the sound can't be contained. It's like everything was mixing up. And in fact, I even, I have a theory. Well, I'll keep it to myself, but I have a theory about that. And, uh, <laughs> maybe, um, maybe
0: off mic, we can discuss it.
1: But... <laughs> off, yeah. Off mic. I'll play that. Uh, just in case it's a, it's a good idea, but, um, the fact is, is that yeah, they're. Um, I really, I wanted to keep the hip hop in there, you know, because some people are like, yeah. "Oh man, like what the what's Notorious B.I.G. doing in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame?" I'm like, "He's Notorious B.I.G. Like, yeah, where where are you going to put him? Like, you're going to just leave him out because he's a rapper? Like, yeah, that's, it's all part of the same general narrative."
0: Yeah, so, no, I I definitely agree with that. Speaking of which, so so I'm interested why you selected Three Feet High and Rising, which I think is definitely a classic album. There's like no there's no denying it's a classic album and it does have this weird skit framework, but like what what put what tips it over to you that you're like three feet high and rising, that's a concept
1: album. For me, it's funny because someone asked me earlier um, in a different interview if there were any albums I picked that like the artists didn't think they were concept albums. <laughs> and that would be Three Feet High and Rising, where but- they're on record saying this is not a concept album, we just did that stupid skit thing. Like we didn't even know that that was going to be in the record. Like we just did that two days, you know, while we were mixing. And then Prince Paul made it like the whole like running gag. Yeah. And I'm like, well, it's still there because what I always heard the album as it's a game show. And then the songs are the commercials.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: And which I think is like brilliant. And even if it wasn't totally intended from their side, I think the stru- it still has better structure than like a lot of great albums, even if it is sort of silly and sort of an afterthought. That said, the bigger theme that I really wanted to do is there's like these three golden albums. Uh, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back. My public enemy, uh, Baylife, soul and rising, and three feet high. Uh, Live, soul, three feet high and rising, and then the Beastie Boys, uh, Paul's Boutique,
2: mm-hmm. where
1: these three sort of albums were made in this very small window of time. Oh where no one was really policing copyright of the actual original samples.
0: Right. Right.
1: And so, um, for me and I work like my day jobs in the copyright office. So I'm like fascinated by sort of copyright tales. And so of these three, I feel like the one that got kind of crucified was three feet high and rising yeah, because the turtles was that song from heard their, you know, song from, um, actually their concept album, the turtles, uh, Present battle of the Band. right? Where they um, they
0: pretend to be a different, or they're a different band each track or whatever. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And it was
1: Eleanor, which um, no, you you showed me, which um, that was the that was the song they they used it for the French talking track, and it's beautiful. And they got so mad and felt like they were disrepresented. But then they and they ah, there's just so much you can say about this. I'm sorry. Well, the, um, well
0: yeah, like even the quote, I I assume it's from Mark Volman in in, in the book that you grab. Or maybe it's just their representative is saying like they feel like their song has been mutilated and it's like, no, like your song still exists. It's fine. Like it's its own thing. But like it's it's been reinvigorated. Like I I I genuinely feel like like there's definitely some songs that take a sample and it's so lazy and I'm just like you did you did nothing here. But like everything on Three Feet High and Rising, like they're they're what they're doing is so creative. Like, yeah, it's not mutilation. It's definitely not.
1: And it's fun. And I just, so I like the general just concept of this then like groundbreaking use of samples as instruments, basically as of mm. samples instead of, you know, Phil Spector would get like 12 guitarists. Well, these guys would stack like five different samples. <laughs> and I felt conceptually there was something to that too. And then especially then with the reaction they got where, you know, up until earlier this year or last year, the album wasn't even available on iTunes, and he yeah, has that great line about how, the, you know, it's in the congressional recording registry, but you can't, it, but you can't get it on iTunes, right? Because <laughs> all the lawsuits and everything,
2: yeah. Which
1: is just insane. And now that's now that's changed. Everyone's really come around, but I found all that fascinating, and the idea that of like what is a record, like how something just it becomes this sort of m- media currency,
2: yeah.
1: Um, but then you know, you can build into something else. Um, and so all that, then, then the fact that it did have like the silly skits being the sort of tie between it. I sort of was like, I think this, I think, I think this could work basically. And, you know, while something like Paul's boutique, I, I'd love to, I'd love to sit down and figure out which one uses more samples. Cause those are the two, mm-hmm. that like super mm-hmm. sample heads, but three feet mm-hmm. rising, I think just had more of like a collective vision. They had their whole like Daisy age and stuff where it's yeah. Boys boys the vision, but it's just, just sort of a lot more adolescent, Whereas um, De La Soul seem to really be trying to do stuff on different levels in terms of, like, some of our songs are for kids, some of our songs are, like, social commentary, some of our songs are just stupid, we're just cracking each other up. And um, I also like kind of the, um, even though they deny being hippies, there's still their use of flowers and bright colors and stuff, which I think is sort (laughs) of a callback to Pepper. You know, I think there's a line between, like, say, Pepper, like, Funkadelic, and then De La Soul in terms of, like, the kind of, like, bright Technicolor Day Glow. Yeah, um, you know, yeah.
0: Yeah. I'll buy fun. that. I'll buy that for sure. Um we should move on, but but real quick, I just wanted to say there's more more than one punk album, but is is Iron Maiden's seventh son of a seventh son the only uh, metal album here? Yeah,
1: and that was another um suggestion by the editors. They said you don't have any heavy metal albums, and they and that's the genre that kept it going for so long. Mm-hmm. But then once I started actually digging, I couldn't find too many like Front to back concept albums, mm-hmm. and I have a friend who was super into metal. Is super into metal, and he <laughs> was like my metal junkie friend that knew everything. And he basically wrote back and was like, "He wrote, he's like, yeah, you consider this, you consider that, but like, he's like really, um, Seventh Son is going to be the one." Interesting, and that was the one that on other online, that was like that was always on the list somewhere. Was Seventh Son of a Seventh Son? Yeah, so I. I, think I was a great-
0: I, I was yeah I was just gonna ask if if it was like a particular favorite or why that was the one selected because like I think as a non non metalhead who vaguely knows stuff I was like I feel like and it's all relative but I feel like uh, what is it, the uh, Operation Mindcrime feels like the maybe slightly better known like metal concept the, album the yeah but also I think <laughs> that one's like more also more well they're both narratives right Seventh Son of a Seventh Son is is uh. It's based on uh, – who is it based on?
1: It was a, a – I'm not going to remember the author's name, but it's loosely based on this science fiction um, was new it, age type.
0: Was it Orson Scott Card? Was it that guy?
1: Yes. Yep. It, yep. Okay, good. That's right. You're right on that. Yeah. Um, I just um, – yeah, that was the one that sort of – from everything I could tell, that was like a very safe one to choose. and okay. you know, I did – and I had that great – when I got the um, – Dickinson, when I got his autobiography and he's talking about the thing, he's like, We're gonna make a concept album. And I saw this direct line between that and Spinal Tap because <laughs> you know, the whole Stonehenge, like where they're like, They're you know, he says it like it's like he's just solved world hunger or something like that, where he's just like, I know what we can do, like Stonehenge, and it's just sort of like,
2: <laughs> Right, oh,
1: <You> know, <laughs> that's really where the concept album's now become this like punchline, yeah, and so. That to then hear him write his biography completely earnestly, being like, you know, it had, it had story, it had great music, it had it all. Like, Seven Son of a Seven Son. And I was like, oh, I love that you write like this and that you're heavy metal. Nice. Um, and then the fact that it then is about prophecy, and then, you know, it actually, there was that concert that they played where like a couple guys got like trampled to death in the mud. Right. That was like, that was crazy. And I was like, holy cow. So it was just, just a lot of crazy things coming
0: together yeah and and like going in not knowing that album and then reading the chapter like i think i think that one's a particularly good example of really yeah just really feeling your writing guiding me through and also like starting off with the spinal tap comparison which you do in in the chapter i think is is a very good way to disarm someone that's like what is this album but like yeah no it's great right uh, okay, let's move on. So, part four you call the postmodern era, and it's basically the '90s. And the five, right? The five you have here is uh, Liz Fairs' "Exile in Guyville," Nine Inch Nails' "The Downward Spiral," Notorious B.I.G.'s "Ready to Die," Radiohead's OK Computer," and Lauren Hill's "The Miseducation of Lauren Hill." So, did you have an excerpt you wanted to go from here?
1: Either do Liz Fair or Notorious B.I.G. Okay, do you have a preference.
0: You know what? Do Liz Fair. Do Liz Fair.
1: Okay, cool. Yeah, I don't think I've done a female one yet. Nice. Uh, Okay. Uh, One day in 1991, a 24-year-old Chicago-based singer-songwriter named Liz Fair stumbled across a cassette tape of the Rolling Stones' double album, Exile on Main Street, that someone had left behind in her apartment. I listened to it over and over again, Fair remembered, and it became like my source of strength. My involvement with Exile was like an imaginary friend. Whatever Mick, uh, Mick Jagger, the lead singer of the Rolling Stones, was saying, it was a conversation with him, or I was arguing with him. It was kind of an amalgam of the men in my life. For Fair, the album was like an unfinished story, a script missing half its dialogue. She made it her mission to complete it. Fair signed with Matador Records in 1992, which she secured after her homemade girly sound tapes became an underground sensation. As an unknown female artist betting her debut on a double record response to the finest album by the biggest rock and roll band in the world, Bear had her work cut out for her. I took it like a thesis, Fair explained on, a, on MTV's 120 Minutes in 1994. What I did was I just took the XL on Main Street album, like lyrically and just in terms of like arrangement, sequencing, and I answered it my own way. I treated mixed lyrics like a sort of love object. He was what the man was saying, and this is what I was coming back with. And it was kind of like this little dance between the two albums. It was a special kind of concept album, an answer album. Fair took the Stones' album and created a track-by-track response, even arranging the number of songs on each side to mirror the Stones' original. And while the Stones' album title referred to fleeing the UK on tax charges, Fair's exile was closer to home. Barring a word from fellow Chicagoan uh, Urge Overkill's 1992 "Goodbye to Guyville," Fair named her project "Exile in Guyville," as she explained in 2018. Guyville was a specific scene in Chicago, predominantly male indie rock, and they had their own little establishment of, like, who was cool, who was in it, who played in what band. Inspired to prove herself among the guys of Guyville, Bear crafted a record about gender in modern society as modeled on an album by a group of men who were the establishment of male rock star coolness. Bear's audacity outstripped everything except her talent, although being unknown worked in her favor. As Grell Marcus wrote in 2014 about Fair taking on the Stones, it was a dare. Someone who no one's ever heard of can say as much, can say more than someone everyone's heard of, whom everyone listens to, and in her own voice. Such a story is always new, and it's new now. Part of Exile and Guyville's intrigue was that its concept hides in plain sight, so if one is not familiar with Fair's intentions and the Rolling Stones' back catalog, they would entirely miss it. As a testament to Fair's artistry, one can love the album without knowing the concept that drives it. For our purposes here, however, we'll focus on how Guyville answers uh, Main Street. More than any other album we've looked at, Guyville is an interactive concept album, an unfinished puzzle, and one that requires active participation on the listener's part to put it together. At a time when the divide between indie and mainstream rock was shrinking, Fair further bridged the gap by creating a new indie album that was spoke directly to a classic mainstream album. As a marketing strategy, it was clever. As a gesture to break into the male dominated music industry, it was revolutionary.
0: Great. It's interesting, too, because my personal uh, relationship, I guess, with um, Exile and Guyville is I first heard Liz, Liz Fair's follow up album, Whip Smart, and then went backwards. Yep. And then found out the concept. So, like, I was I was one of those that was just oblivious and was like, oh, good record. And then went back and then kind of did a little bit what you do in the chapter and, like, you know, present the song from Exile on Main Street and then show how Liz is answering it. And she's not, like, doing, like, a one-to-one, like, this sounds like this. Or she's not doing a one-to-one, like, this is a direct response. You know, it's, like, it's a little more nuanced, a little better. And... Uh, I'm glad you did that work. So I didn't, I didn't have to.
1: So <laughs> it was a lot, I mean, a lot of it was already done in interviews and, and other people's writing. So, yeah, but it's, I love, I love playing that. Um, yeah. Cause it's not like a weird out thing. It's not like she's like, Oh, I'm just going to, you know, take this. It, she even said like some of the songs I went by the vibe, just how the song felt to me. Mm. Other times I like answered a question or like put myself in dialogue. So that was sort of part of the fun, the intrigue and the mystery too, was sort of trying to piece it all together. Yeah music nerds that's like that's like really fun
0: yeah totally so in the 90s you have a couple that uh i mean i guess OK computer it does it does feel like even if it's not articulated that you you get this sense that this is an album about one thing kind of so so that one that one i get and and maybe it could be said the same thing about downward spiral but uh, I was actually texting with someone about like, oh, what are some of the albums? And I was like, downward spiral. And they're like, well, wait, why not the fragile? Like that feels so much more like an explicit, like concept album versus the, and I was like, I don't know. I'll ask. So this is me asking like, what, right. what, what spoke to you in nine inch nails catalog that you're like, downward spiral is the
1: pick. Downward spiral for me was like, their, I mean, I know that pretty hate machine was like for its day, a very huge breakthrough. Yeah. But I mean, I just I personally remember when Downward Spiral came out, and that seemed to just blow everything else away, and the videos are made for it and everything, Um, and the fact that it landed in the 90s. Like, I wanted to, you know, the Fragile, I think, I want to say was like 2002 or something or 2000, Mm. Mm. Um, so a little bit beyond the scope. But again, I sort of, whenever I was questioning, you know, same thing with what we were talking earlier about with Pink Floyd, I usually went with the earlier one. because I feel like that's kind of where they're first sort of crystallizing it. And sometimes that's where you get kind of the truest sort of story of what they're trying to tell. Yeah, And, you know, and with the downward spiral, I definitely see it as like, you know, the title gives it away. Like it is this downward (laughs) spiral and it gets more and more messed up. Like as you listen to it. Um, but there's also just so much fascinating stuff going on. And he's another guy who seemed to like him and Jimi Hendrix seemed to talk to like everybody that ever put a microphone in front of them. There's just like so many little interviews. Um, (laughs) So, and he definitely, like, Trent Reznor is obviously no dummy and has done a lot of self-reflection on stuff like this. Yeah. Um But I also thought it was interesting, too, because the way it works with then, it almost sets up the, um, the, the Notorious B.I.G. album. Just this whole idea of, like, I just feel like the concept album overall it gets darker. I don't know if that's, like, society's getting darker or what, but, you know, those with OK Computer are um just sort of three albums that arguably are about like people dying or like you're Mm. following them on the app downward so that's why that's why i went with um i guess i mean i i you know truth be told i just i know that i know downward spiral better than the fragile and stuff so it was easier for me to kind of like sink my teeth into like i you know i remember you know so
0: yeah and it's it's your book so
1: (laughs) right and that's the thing is that i you know I say in the intro, and I mean it is like these aren't supposed to be the greatest or even the most influential like this is just twenty five albums that I felt like told this gave this yeah. scope, told the story and
0: and I do so, in addition to what you're saying about the themes of death the the thing that I find by picking these five albums for the nineties is that it it is sort of like like squirming both within a concept and then like refusing to own up to it a little bit. Like, like, especially yeah. like, I think the quote you have from it, from it might be Tom York in the okay computer is Like this is not a concept album, but if you, but it's like, have you listened to okay computer Fred? Like, of course it right, fit. Yeah.
1: Like, yeah. <laughs> and well, that was one of the most, I don't know if it all made the book, but at one point I was fascinated. Well, I love okay computer and I was fascinated by it because Everyone says it's a concept album, but then no one has the same idea what the concept is. And at some point, I found like five different reviews of like five different people saying, oh, the concept's blah, 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 <laughs> No, it's blah, blah. And uh, I just found that fascinating that now concept album has this sort of token sound, mm-hmm. even if people can't, you know, it's not like Ziggy Stardust where, oh, it's an album about Ziggy Stardust. Now it's like <laughs> uh, society and machines, I don't know. Right. Uh, <laughs> I think it was Spin that ended their little description with or something, and I'm like, I think that's probably you know <laughs> kind of, that's the 90s way of putting it. Yeah. Um, oh, I'm because for a long time I was strongly considering Kid A. I thought Kid A would be a fascinating.
2: Mm. Uh, oh yeah, fascinating
1: yeah. Because they're just one of those bands that again, but again, I went with the earlier one. I went with the one that more people know. Um, and I sort of forgot what a lightning rod that album is because already people have been like asking me about that one specifically. So. Oh,
2: really?
1: <laughs> um, Yeah, but it's uh, it's a freaking beautiful album. So then, for your you were saying earlier that you questioned my '90s choices. You felt like there was stuff that was left out. Well, I I guess
0: it was it wasn't. Yeah, it it wasn't that. I think I think it was what I kind of just articulated there is is that it's like it's so funny to me that I think a lot of these albums would actively try to resist being called concept albums. Uh, Yeah, but I, I. I, I mean, you've won me over. Like, I, I think, I think they all deserve a place in the book I didn't write that you wrote instead.
1: <laughs> thank you,
0: thank you.
1: Um, uh, well, and it's someone said to me along the lines too. They were like, well, once you get an notorious, notorious B I G, like that's just like a rap album. I'm like, but I hear it as an autobiography. Like, yeah. if you listen to, you know, just some like the Chronic, like that's not a concept album the same way. I mean, it is in terms of creating a lifestyle sort of atmosphere, but, you know, whereas, you know, I I hear uh, Ready to Die is like, you know, from his childhood through his death, basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. or a version of it. I
0: think that actually the hip-hop ones are kind of the strongest one, because especially like, uh, we'll, we'll get into part five, but like the story in Good Kid, Mad City, like, you know, he expec- explicitly says like, it's a short film. Like, it's basically like yep. a, a mind movie. And told told out of order, but like yeah, it's it's a mind movie for you. Um, all right, so so your last section is part five, the new millennium. Um, you've got Brian Wilson's smile, um, Green Day's American Idiot, uh, Janelle Monet's The Arc Android. Um, Kendrick Lamar's Good Kid, Mad City, and then the last one you have, which is in the title, From the Beatles to Beyonce, is Beyonce's Lemonade. What, a, what, a, what would you like to sample for us?
1: I was going to read some of the uh, Janelle Monae album. All right, There's perfect. another one of those albums that I really knew nothing about, and I was like, this, is, this kicks ass. This is great. Yeah. Um, so the album stars, uh, she plays a character named Cindy Mayweather um, in the album. So this part starts for both Cindy Mayweather and Janelle Monae freedom is everything. In 2016, Monet said, I owe it to myself and to those who fought for my freedom to be free as much as I can. Three years earlier, Monet was asked if she felt encouraged to bury her individualism and conform to set standards at the beginning of her career. I never take those things personally and I am not a victim, she answered diplomatically, but I had to make sure that I stood up for the things that I believed in, the right to wear a tuxedo, the right to have a concept album. When you feel like your rights are being taken away from you, you start to rebel, which has really worked for my career. The right to have a concept album. These words stop me cold. Concept albums have long been the cliche domain of white male rockers. As a black female performer in 2010, Monet still felt like she had to fight for her right to have a concept album three decades after Donna Summer helped pave the way. This form, which was founded on the music-breaking free of the record, is now something that must be fought for as a freedom. If you listen to the album from the beginning to the end without skipping, you'll hear there is a story. And we like to think of the music as transformative because it is very diverse, Janelle Monet once said about the Arch Android. I mean, in terms of influence, it encompasses all the things I love. Plus, I do consider it genderless because I feel the music itself is so much bigger than the labels and categories.
0: And it's interesting because I, I kind of, like... I I forget what the first EP is. is. It the Chase was the EP before the that album.
1: Yes, that's right. Yeah.
0: So like like I I I listened to that. I listened to um, Arch Android. I listened to uh, Electric Lady. And it's funny because like on the cover, it's like this is part you know two and three and and four and five of so many parts. And then you talk about it a little bit. Then she just was like, you know what, I'm gonna let it go. You know, me and Cindy Mayweather, we kind of got where we're going and like, well, who cares what part six and seven is like, I, I, now I'm just, Janelle Monet, like, and I, I kind of love she
1: that it be like four or five parts or something. Originally she kept on expanding it. Right. So. <laughs> I hope one day it's like a George Lucas thing and she makes like a whole set of movies about it and it'll be like, Oh, like that'd be magical. Yeah. Cause she can, she can do anything. Um, she's phenomenal. Um, but yeah, no, it is funny to see her sort of curate it as she goes. Right.
0: <laughs> well, cool. I'm glad that we were able to sort of, uh, get, get through a lot of the book. Uh, obviously we, we all have copies in the arts annex over at skylight books. You can also purchase online at skylightbooks.com. You should check it out. 50 years of the concept album in popular music from the Beatles to Beyonce by Eric Wolfson. Um I hope we've wet your appetite cuz there is definitely much more to dig
1: into. Um did you have any parting thoughts? Just that uh I intend the book to like I was saying, you know, not to be a definitive history as much as the beginning of a conversation. This is the first major book to tell the story of the concept album and I felt like the best way to do that was through the albums themselves. Yeah. And so If somebody's like, uh, you know, this book stinks because you didn't include Genesis, or I'm like, great, like, write me the book that has Genesis in it. Like, I'm the first I'll be the first to read it. Like That sounds great. You know, or, uh, you know, maybe I do a sequel book one day if this is popular enough. But, um, you know, I'm not trying to be the end all be all, but I'm still bracing myself for, you know, people being like. <laughs> you no, know, where's Marillion or whatever in the movie like? Yeah, no, I, I'm sure
0: there's a there's a lot of prog nerds that are gonna be like, what are you talking actually, uh, what was it? Yeah, my Alan who co-hosts the movie podcast that we do as part of this series, he was like, uh, he doesn't write about Mastodon? What the hell? So was, for the next book, they'll there'll be Mastodon, there'll be Genesis, there'll be Marillion, there'll be all the nerd bands for all you nerds, but first you gotta buy this book. And bye for all of your friends and all of your family. Um, Thanks again for for coming on the podcast, Eric. Thank you for listening. And uh, thank you. We'll see you next time. Yes. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Skylight Books podcast series. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to check out the book featured in this episode or others, please visit skylightbooks.com. If you're in the Los Angeles area, stop by for one of our live in-person author events. You can find a calendar on our website. If you like this podcast, leave us a review. It really helps us out. Our music is by Duck the
1: Piano Wire. Till next time.